This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Stillbirth Foundation Australia and Community Care Kitchen. The content shared in this podcast represents the views of the Still Nest and our guests and may not specifically reflect the views of these organisations. Please seek professional medical advice for any clinical circumstances that may arise. Welcome to the Stillness Podcast, a place of solace for bereaved parents and their communities. I'm Dr. Fatima El Assad, a researcher and a bereaved parent. Losing a child can make you question everything your identity, your faith, and your place in the world. On this show, we will explore the complexities of child loss particularly within culturally and linguistically diverse communities. I'd like to hold space for bereaved parents to be seen, heard and understood. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'd like to begin this podcast with an acknowledgement to the traditional owners of the land and their ongoing custodianship. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In today's episode, we'll be exploring what happens when your baby dies and making decisions within a healthcare setting. If you were triggered by our conversation, There are a number of resources that I've linked in the show notes for you. We are discussing difficult experiences often unheard, so please take the time to check in with yourself and get the help you need. Today I have a very intriguing guest. We went to university together. She was always vivacious, incredibly intelligent, and she's gone on to devote her time to working with pregnant families. Thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. Can you please introduce yourself? Thank you very much for having me on your program today. My name is Zane. Uh, I work as an obstetrics and gynaecology fellow specialising in the area of maternal fetal medicine at Liverpool Hospital in Sydney's southwest. So a little bit about myself. I grew up here in Sydney. My family came or migrated to Australia from Jordan in 1992. So we came here as professional migrants and I grew up primarily in North Sydney, worlds away I think from where I work at the moment. When I reflect on my childhood, I think I had a very privileged upbringing and I see that a lot of sacrifice and hard work went into uh, making me the person that I am today. When I finished up high school, I'd done primarily subjects in in the arts and the humanities, and this is an area that's always fascinated me, people and their stories and what we do and who we are. And instead of going into that and delving into that in more detail, ironically, I wanted to get away from that for a little bit. And so I went to uh, university to study science. And I found myself uh, increasingly itching back to go into the arts and combine my love of science with my love for humanity and and my thirst for wanting to know about people and their stories. And this is what led me to go into medicine 
as not only I never call it a career because medicine is a lifestyle. So after I finished my science degree, uh, I went to went on to study the uh, Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Science, and graduated in 2012. I then went on to start my work, um, and this was the first time I ventured out into the wild, wild west, and my first placement was at Westmead Hospital. And from there, I did a rotation in obstetrics and gynecology and realised that that was my passion, looking after women and their families, and then eventually got onto the training program for obstetrics and was assigned to start working at Liverpool Hospital in Sydney's southwest. At the same year, I, I got married. So I met my husband just the year before I went into training um, and we got married and we went on our honeymoon. On the first day back from my honeymoon, I started training as, as an obstetrics and gynaecology registrar. It's been the most amazing and incredible journey so in two weeks' time, I, I finished my training in obstetrics and gynaecology to become a fellow. It's taken me eight years. And the reason for that is because in the last uh, eight years of my training, I have welcomed three lovely ladies into my life. I have three daughters, Hannah, who is aged five and a half, Layla, who is aged four, and Susanna, who is aged two and a half. And that experience for me has probably been the most important one uh, on my journey to becoming an obstetrician and gynaecologist. And so from that, one thing has led to the other and I have found that my true passion is looking after women whose journeys and pregnancies are complicated uh, in, in mostly uh, high-risk ways, be it from a maternal or from a fetal point of view. And that has led me to uh, apply for and start my journey in maternal fetal medicine and looking after women from high risk obstetric backgrounds, uh, for which I've started working in the field this year and will continue on for the next three years to work in that field. It's been an amazing adventure so far and it's been such a privilege to be able to undertake this role and to be able to look after women from all sorts of backgrounds. That's incredible, um, Zane. Thank you so much for sharing and what a journey. We're quite blessed to have somebody like you trained up to be looking after, you know, families at a very vulnerable time, especially when they do have a traumatic or high-risk pregnancy and experience. Do we want to perhaps take a moment just to sort of explore the causes of perinatal loss? So there are lots of causes of perinatal loss, and again, if we're just focusing mostly on perinatal loss that, that occurs before 20 weeks, then the majority of the times we, so quite early in the pregnancy, I think the one way that we look at it is depending on what trimester they occur. So if, if we have a perinatal loss that occurs in the first 12 weeks uh, of gestation, the majority of the time uh, it's because there's a chromosomal or a genetic problem with the fetus, with baby. So it's that it was never going to go on to be a healthy baby. And so the cells haven't come together in, in the right way or there might be an extra chromosome or a, a really important part um, of one chromosome missing. So the majority of first trimester losses are due to genetic problems uh, within the fetus. 
And then you move on to the second trimester where, again, genetic or chromosomal problems is a major contributing factor. But generally speaking, we also then have contribution from from the environment that the baby is in. So we're looking at things like the uterus, the implantation of the embryo into the uterus. We're looking at things like the cervix and the ability of the cervix to support or hold the pregnancy. So some of the causes that we may find from a second trimester point of view might be due to a cervix not being able to sustain the pregnancy or what we term as cervical incompetence where mum goes into labour at such a, such an early gestation. So if we say before 20 weeks, for example, and uh, from that point of view, baby unfortunately passing away because of prematurity or extreme prematurity. Um, so that's a really important cause. Uh, another cause might be um, at this sort of mid-trimester level is if the waters break early, for example, if there's what we call pre-viable premature rupture of membranes um, and one of the causes for that might be an infection that mum may have sustained um, and so in that regard the body recognises that the baby is uh, is breeding in a noxious environment or a, an environment where it's not going to be safe for it to grow in and and the membranes rupture because of that and once the membranes rupture there is a high risk that mum will go into preterm birth because of that and if she does stay pregnant um, that's got risks associated with it so it might be that she ends up miscarrying um, because because the body has gone into labour on its own in order to try and expel the infection or it could be that um, the medical team end up recommending an early induction or an early uh, termination of pregnancy because the the loss of fluid may not be uh, safe for the baby to then go on to have proper lung development. Um, and then when we move on to the third trimester, again, in, in that sort of realm or once we get that far, the contribution of um, the maternal environment is very important. So it's where, it's here that we see condition, maternal conditions like hypertension, for example, um, causing, unfortunately, conditions like an abruption of the placenta, so where the placenta shears off the sidewall of the uterus um, as one cause, for example, or infection is still um, a very important cause, unfortunately, of, of uh, perinatal loss. Um, we have less so the contribution at this stage of congenital anomalies, but it's still a major contribution um, to perinatal loss. Um, there are other causes. The placenta um, in the third trimester is a very important organ and it's one that's very sensitive. So if there is any circumstance that interrupts the flow of blood from the mother to the baby, uh, for example, if there is, um, and this would have been really early on in pregnancy, if there's any problems with the way that the placenta has implanted into the uterus, this may not show up really early in pregnancy or even in the second trimester, but in the third trimester, as the baby grows, the baby can outgrow the ability of its placenta to supply it with blood appropriately. 
Um, and in that regard, you may then see a baby that becomes growth restricted um, and then it, it's not able to be sustained properly by the placenta. And because of that, uh, we end up having unfortunate cases of fetal demise or perinatal loss um, as a placental cause. So there are lots of different reasons. Um, and then the main, the other thing I wanted to also touch on, which is unfortunate for some families, is the category of unrec- uh, sort of uncategorized pre- um, perinatal losses. So for some women, there are a spectrum of investigations um, that come back inconclusive. So for for some women, unfortunately, we just don't know what the cause is. There are unexplained fetal losses. Um, and that, that's very hard to tell parents. You know, we we do have, obviously, a whole spectrum of investigations that we can offer. But we do also warn parents that sometimes we just don't find a cause. That can be exceptionally hard to hear um, at a time like that when you have lost a, a child so what I'm what I'm hearing is that there is a plethora of different reasons that could potentially lead to a loss um, throughout your pregnancy across the evolution of your pregnancy, and each family is probably going to be presenting with a very unique set of circumstances. I mean, the grief and the loss um, cannot be underestimated. It doesn't matter what stage they've actually lost their baby, but in terms of us as support for a family that's going through that, it's important that we don't sort of lump them all into the same one and understand that there are complexities and unique circumstances behind each loss. Do you want to perhaps walk us through what a family can expect when they actually find out that they've lost their baby? So... I wanted to start off uh, by saying that no matter how much experience you've worked in the field, no matter how many cases or pregnancies you've seen, every loss is a significant one. And every loss, I'd, you know, I, it affects you in different ways, um, but every loss is tragic, every loss is heartbreaking. And this is us looking at it from the outside. I can't imagine what families go through when they experience loss. Um, and it doesn't matter if it is a, a pregnancy or a baby that has come, you know, after having five, six children already, or if it's one that has come after 10 years of infertility, every loss is a loss. And so what might, uh, what someone or a family might experience when they go through a loss, it really depends on the situation um, and the gestation at which they're diagnosed with a loss. There are for some women um, some warning signs that that they may be a pregnancy that's going to unfortunately end in a loss. Um, And so for those women, for example, there might be or there may have been recognition that there was an abnormality from a genetic point of view or from an anatomical point of view or from a placental point of view, maybe even from a growth point of view in their baby. So these are women for whom if we do expect that there might be an unfortunate case of of a loss, we do try to prepare them as much as we can um, prior to this occurring. And it's not not about setting a scene of doom and gloom 
but it's more so that the families can start to come to terms with the reality of the situation and sort of try and, I guess, collate resources internally and around them to be able to deal with their grief. So in in the case, for example, of, of a pregnancy that is prior to 12 weeks gestation, um, so one that's in the first trimester, if we find uh, on, say, an early ultrasound that it's a pregnancy where the fetus hasn't developed properly or there's no heartbeat, we call that an early fetal demise, um, it's usually seen on an ultrasound. And in that particular circumstance, quite early on, we will refer the patient to the early pregnancy assessment clinic for which they'll be seen by someone from the obstetrics team. We'll talk them through the different options for for delivery. Um, so they'll they'll get assessed medically to make sure that mum is stable from a medical point of view in terms of pain or bleeding. Some pregnancies uh, where there is a loss early on may uh, go on in terms of of the mum still having um, pregnancy symptoms and a positive hormone test um, and without mum necessarily having any bleeding or pain early on and it may be that you know Bubba's passed away three weeks prior without mum um, having any symptoms at all so we do talk about the different options of managing the pregnancy and that may include uh, letting expectant management so letting the body sort of um, recognize that it is no longer pregnant and then going through a miscarriage process on its own uh, versus having medical management where mum is prescribed tablets um, to help evacuate the the products of the uterus uh, versus having surgical management. So that's where there is a curette or a clean out of the uterus. And so we always link women then with the with the option of seeing a social worker um, and we give them resources to call upon if they need them. So for some women, the grief comes straight away. For others, it may come at a later time. So they are linked to what we call the Bears of Hope uh, support network to be able to, and not just mums, dads too, if they need to reflect on the loss at any time. And generally speaking, the management um, can be initiated as quickly or as uh, delayed as the mum is or the family is ready to deal with. But generally speaking, within a three to four week framework for the sake of not wanting to uh, have any complications arise from from a continuing pregnancy such as an infection. Um, now, if we do see or if we do diagnose a loss in the second trimester, the management is a little bit different. Um, in most circumstances, if it is found to be the case, it's usually diagnosed at the ultrasound that's performed at 19 to 20 weeks. So there is in um, there is a set number of ultrasounds that we would recommend as a minimum for most women, even if they are uh, just low-risk pregnancies. And we would recommend that all women undertake an ultrasound at 20 weeks, 19 to 20 weeks, to look for any abnormalities or fetal anomalies in the baby. Um, so that's where we would uh, diagnose if it has occurred, the majority of second trimester pregnancy losses. Um, and so, or any circumstance that we may then go on to 
to possibly lead into uh, a miscarriage, uh, sorry, a second trimester loss, particularly if there's any anomaly seen on the ultrasound that may have a poor prognosis for the baby. So if we find um, that baby has already passed away and mum is already 20, about 20 weeks plus, then the management then um, is more so uh, guided towards medical management. So if she's seen for the first time in in an outpatient setting, so if she's at an ultrasound provider that's external to the hospital and it's diagnosed on that external ultrasound rather than within the hospital, she will be referred to the hospital, usually through the antenatal clinic or even to the birthing unit um, to go through the results of the ultrasound and then go through her options for managing um, the investigation as well as the delivery side of things. Um, again, we, we do try to give mums as much time as possible to be able to come to terms with the loss and we don't want to um, try to try to put a time limit on when the pregnancy or the delivery needs to be managed. But within that, there is sometimes, if, if there is a circumstance where an infection has caused the loss, there might be a little bit of a time pressure from the maternal health side of things to be able or to need to manage the delivery in a more timely manner than if it's than if it's a loss that's occurred because of um, because of bub having a major anomaly, for example, or or if it's occurred because the placenta has started to shear off the sidewall of the uterus. Then again, if there are any implications from a maternal health point of view, then it may be recommended to to mum and the family that the delivery is undertaken. Uh, sort of within a more time-sensitive manner. So you and I have been exceptionally passionate about ensuring families make informed, educated decisions around navigating um, processes when their baby dies, especially people from culturally and linguistically diverse communities. What sort of message would you like to leave them with today? So I wanted to talk about the experiences um, that I have had and the experiences that I share from working with culturally and linguistically diverse families in Sydney's southwest community. The main thing that I wanted to get across is the fact that you, the patient, are in control. This is your story. This is your journey. And the healthcare team are here to look after you so I find that unfortunately, one of the things that I feel is still ripe and rampant in our community, uh, firstly, is a lot of the stigma exists around pregnancy losses. So the more that we talk about it, the more we verbalise it, the more I think it becomes known to each and every one of us that a lot of women have had and gone through an experience of a pregnancy loss. So it would be such a good thing to be able to end uh, stillbirths and pregnancy losses altogether. But unfortunately, over the past decade plus, we have still had um, circumstances of unexplained losses. So while in the time being, while we try and work on decreasing 
the amount of losses that we see. We want there to be an acknowledgement that this is something that is not a taboo topic, it's not stigma, it's something that we should be able to talk about freely and share our experiences. Um, There is unfortunately in some families, some communities, an element of shame that comes of it. Some women in particular, they they may feel that a loss for them is is a failure, so failure to fulfil who they are or an obligation that they have. And I want that myth to be dispelled um, and for women to know that the event of, of a loss or the occurrence of a loss is not your fault. It's not the fault of any individual. It's often happened due to circumstances outside anyone's control or will. I want also families to know that when they come in to be looked after their healthcare team, that the team has seen lots of cases and the experiences that we have uh, have given us the experience to be able to look after the circumstances that's unique to you and unique to every individual. So there'll be no particular request that you have that will phase us. If you feel, and I know that some people have particular uh, religious requests and the team looking after you. And this is, I say, or I speak on behalf of the experiences that I have with our healthcare team. We have lots of experiences working with women from all sorts of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So we are accustomed to hearing of particular cultural requests, religious requests. We will be happy Um, as a team to accommodate whatever requests that you may have. There'll be no pressure to undertake any particular investigation. We we have a role on our part as healthcare providers to offer you the spectrum, the full spectrum of investigations that we would routinely undergo. So by way of fulfilling our obligations and then leading on from that, we do have a script where we where we offer women the option to terminate the pregnancy. But we don't, we acknowledge that not everyone will find that acceptable from a cultural or religious point of view. And in offering it to the families, we're just giving you the option. There's no, there's no obligation. We don't want anyone to feel like the healthcare team will pressure them or judge them to make a decision about their pregnancy So that's one important thing that I want women to take on board is to continue to engage with the team that's looking after you and let them know your requests because they are, we are here for you ultimately. The last thing that we want to see is women or families being lost to follow up because they feel uncomfortable to to be able to talk about their particular religious or cultural requests with the team that's looking after them. That shouldn't be the case at all. And they will be, in addition to the medical team, there'll also be the social worker team. There'll also be high-risk trained midwives that will be strong advocates for you. Um, So please engage with them. And there will, in some hospitals as well, be cultural officers. And in every hospital, the availability of interpreter staff, if you feel like you need someone to help you from a language point of view. So... I want people to know that there are resources available and they are out there to help you ultimately as the patient. So reach out to the team looking after you. Let them know what you are comfortable with 
um, what particular requests you have. Um, let them know if you want a second opinion as well. And let them know as well if you want to have uh, someone from the religion chaplain team at the hospital be involved with their care because that's something that can be organised and coordinated. Don't ever feel like any request that you are making is a burden to the team because ultimately that's not the case at all. The team is here to work for you and to help you with your journey. Thank you, Zane. It's been incredible to sort of understand the complexities around the decision-making and um, when a baby dies and knowing that, you know, families do actually have choice. That is so empowering um, to get that message across right at the end there, that families do have choice and knowing that the healthcare team around them is there to support them through their journey is uh, incredibly important. Thanks for your time, Zane. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was my absolute pleasure to be here and to uh, to share with with you all the experiences um, that I've had. And, and ultimately, it is your experience. And I want you all to know that we're, we are looking out for you and we do support every woman who comes in under our care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stillness Podcast. Some of the topics raised in this show can be difficult. If it has left you with any questions, please message me on Instagram at thestillnest.au. Please subscribe, share, rate and review this podcast. It means so much to be able to share these stories. This podcast is produced, edited and recorded by Corey Green of Transducer Audio. And now I'll leave you with a little prayer. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Allahumma ajurni fi musibati. We belong to Allah and to Him we shall return. O Allah, recompense me for my affliction and give me something better. Take care.